Thank you, Julie. And Will at the piano. Will over there is being, he, he's a relaxed guy. This week, well, he's still waiting on the final word, but he took the last certification test to be a teacher in the state of Missouri. We're pretty sure he's passed, but uh, he's still waiting on the official thing. So we're giving thanks for that. He's going to be teaching the traveling music teacher in Lincoln County Schools. So uh, he will show up with a smile and a keyboard. And probably a recorder and parents will curse his name. But <laughs> <laughs> Trash bag back, oh boy. That's going to put some parents in a bad mood. You know, don't, don't you hate it when you're in a funk? You know, we know we're not going to be happy all the time, but you know those blue moods that will set in and just kind of rest on you for the better part of a week. And you, you know, people, you okay? And you're like, yeah, everything's fine. I'm just kind of bleh. You know that one? I, 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 yeah, seeing some nods, had some nods for that in first service too. I was doing some reading, I was looking at a bunch of articles on how to improve your mood. You know, they all kind of go, talk about the same thing. The same recommendations keep popping up. Things like exercise. You know, if you're, if you're active doing something, you're going to feel better. Okay, I get it. You know, I feel better if I've work, gotten a workout in in the morning. Improve your diet. You know, if you lay off the pizza and eat fruits and veggies, you'll lose what little joy remains in your life. No, it... <laughs> Apparently that'll help improve your mood if you... Swap in a salad every now and then. How about if also go to bed and get up earlier? Early to bed, early to rise. Which also makes you wonder the next recommendation is get enough sleep. If you're <laughs> supposed to get up early, I guess you somehow get enough sleep magically. And help others. Okay, that makes sense. You get your focus off yourself, helping others. You feel better about yourself. Pet a dog or cat will improve your mood. You know, yeah. Those of you who have animals, yeah, you pet the dog. Dog enjoys it, and you enjoy it. It lowers both your heart rates. Those of you with cats, you know, you can pet the cat, and it feels good right until it turns into violence, because that's just how cats operate. I see a lot of folks laughing. I think some of you people are cat owners. Yeah, they always love it right up until it's time to bleed. Yes. Also, get out in, sun, in the sun, in nature. You know, that's why we always feel bad like in, right after Christmas in January because it's the dark, dreary time. There's not a whole lot of sunlight and everything's gray. But uh, they tell us that, you know, the colors that we see in nature, you get out there, the green grass, the green trees, those, actually, those colors actually do improve our mood. You know, if we're, if we're surrounded by that, even if you're not much of an outdoorsy type of person, just going for a walk in a park will help you feel better. But you notice that a lot of these focus on our circumstances. And other times when we're talking about being in a good mood, that depends on our circumstances, what we're experiencing. Maybe health, prosperity, or even location. You ever hear somebody say, better a bad day at the beach than a good day at work? I suppose that depends heavily on, you know, how bad it got at the beach. If it was like a sunburn, that's one thing. If it's like, you know, Jaws, that's something else. <sighs> yeah. Hey, you spent the day at the beach. Give him a hand, I guess. I, uh... <sighs> but if we're in good circumstances, the idea is we're doing well. We're happy. We're enjoying life. If we're in bad circumstances, we're miserable, depressed, longing for that sweet, sweet release from this mortal coil. 
It depends on what we're experiencing. So with that in mind, we come to the book of Philippians. And when Paul wrote to this church in Philippi, the man was in prison. He's in Rome. This is one of the prison epistles written while he's jailed. And Paul had been jailed before. I mean, jail was kind of a normal thing for Paul. You know, when we talk about, you know, find yourself, you know, young ladies, find yourself a good biblical man, you know. <laughs> I have, Dad. He's been in prison a lot, you know. That, <laughs> not, quite, not quite the same thing. Paul, as he preached Jesus, he gets thrown in prison. When he came to Philippi, this is recorded in the book of Acts. This is a city where he'd not only been illegally jailed, but also illegally beaten. He's writing this from jail. In the city of Philippi, it's a different kind of city. It's, it, it was a Roman colony. So this, not quite a capital, but it was considered an outpost of Roman culture. Very Roman feel. And if you've ever been around a VFW hall or a place with a lot of veterans, you know how patriotic they are. I, most veterans that I know are very patriotic people. So this is a colony city is where a lot of Roman legionnaires, where they would retire to. These soldiers, when they left the legions, they'd retire to cities like Philippi. So this, this city, it was Roman through and through. Not particularly fertile ground for the gospel. So you would think, Paul, sitting in jail. Writing to a city where he'd been in jail and beaten. For no cause. Illegally even. And this city itself is one where it's kind of hard going for the gospel. You would expect that kind of book to have a pretty dour tone, wouldn't you? One where he's just kind of, well guys, here we are again. You would think this book is going to feel like it's written by Eeyore. But you'd be wrong. Because in Philippians, Paul points his readers to joy in Christ. It's actually one of the most uplifting books in the New Testament. And when we come to Christ, we, we come to him and we have this initial joy at conversion. We, I've never seen anybody come out of the baptistry with a frown on their face. Even when the heater was busted. Their teeth might be chattering, but they're smiling. Why? New life in Christ. They belong to Him. He belongs to them. Now I belong to Jesus. He belongs to me. Even that song is an uplifting song. It's never done in a minor key. That would be weird. No, we come out and we're, we belong to him, but life beats us down. And we learn that that joy in Christ we have to cultivate. We have to make sure it keeps going. It takes effort. And in this book of Philippians, we learn that joy in Christ is our joy. It's not something that should come and go for a Christian. It should be a characteristic for us. It shouldn't just, oh, not feeling it. It always ought to be there. Not that we're always, you know... Happy, happy, joy, joy, but that we always have this feeling of contentment. Folks, the joy that we're going to talk about this morning is not being Mr. or Miss Bubbly. You know those folks, the ones who are just so bubbly, they are practically carbonated. 
They're just always sunny. They're a joy to be around, but they can be a little exhausting, but they're just fun because they're always bringing you up. That, this isn't necessarily going to do that for you. Instead, we're talking about a much deeper-seated joy, a joy that says, whatever happens, we're going to be okay. A joy that keeps us out of the despair that characterizes the world. No, in Philippians, when we see as Paul writes to them, what he tells them is something we need. We need to rejoice. Because our joy in Christ, it's not just for good times. And when we truly grasp what God has done for us, it's going to be hard to be a sourpuss. It's going to be hard to to despair. Instead, we will always have an abiding joy. And in this letter, he shows us when we can rejoice. Now, I'll admit, he doesn't say much in this letter about rejoicing when things are going great. That's because it's not hard to rejoice when things are going great. The Bible never really tells us how to do the easy things. We don't need help there. Paul doesn't tell us how to breathe either. He assumes we've got it. No, the things we are told in the Bible are usually things that are hard or things that we are not normally inclined to do and we are told to do those things and we are taught how to do those things because we have to deliberately try to do those things. So when we rejoice when the circumstances are poor, that's not an easy thing. It doesn't come naturally. For Paul, it's bad enough that he's in prison right now. And he relates his circumstances to this church. And we learn there's even more going on. It's not just that he's in prison. There's other things. But yet, he rejoices here in chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here's Paul, he's in prison. It's not rattling the bars of the cage, it's really just house arrest. But rather than sitting there thinking, woe is me, he's rejoicing. Even though under house arrest, he can't go anywhere. He's unable to visit other churches. He can't start ones in new places. That's really what he wants to do. Paul's a church planter. He's always going someplace new. As Albert McGee said when I took the class of Acts under, under him at St. Louis Christian College, he said, wonder what Paul would have done with a jet plane. I mean, because he went all through the ancient world on his own two feet with a wind-powered ship. Man, you give that guy a 767 and you just stand back and watch. He would have been platinum status with Delta or American or whatever the high level status. I'm never going to be up there, but you know, this guy would be on a plane every time you turn around going someplace new to preach Jesus, but he can't. And what's more, he's not just sitting at home. He's sitting there under threat of death. When he was in Jerusalem, he was arrested because the Jews were starting a riot when he was at the temple, accusing him of bringing Gentiles in and defiling the temple. 
They were going to kill him, so they transferred him away from Jerusalem. And the governor there wouldn't give him a trial. His accusers never showed up. Usually, that's going to mean case dismissed. The governor wanted a bribe. So he held on to Paul, kept bringing him in, talking with him. And finally, after a long time, Paul got fed up with it and said, You know, you know I should be free, but you're hanging on to me. So Paul was a Roman citizen. And the right of every Roman citizen, if you could appeal to Caesar... He said, you're not going to let me loose. You're not going to kill me if I've done something wrong. You're not going to set me free. If I'm, if I'm innocent, you're not going to do anything. You're just sitting here waiting for money. I appeal to Caesar. The governor at that point said, well, you appealed to Caesar, off you go. Gets on a boat, gets shipwrecked, gets on another boat, finally gets to Rome. And here he sits at the end of the book of Acts, waiting for his audience with the Roman emperor. That's when he wrote this. Now, the Roman emperor, he can do whatever he wants. When, he, when Paul comes before him, maybe the emperor is going to say, well, nobody's here to accuse you. This isn't a Roman issue. Get out of here. You're free. Go. Or maybe the emperor got up on the wrong side of bed that day. And he says, you know, I'm not sure this is a Roman issue, but if I throw you under the chariot, I have an easier time with the Jews, so uh, you're guilty, I'm going to execute you. It could happen at any time. It could go either way. Most of us would be sitting there nervous. But Paul rejoices, and he rejoices because he sees the situation is not what matters. He's not focused on not being able to go anywhere. He's not focused... On his future. He says the gospel, meanwhile. The gospel goes forth. That's what his focus is. He may not be able to go forth to preach, but he does preach. The news about Jesus is spreading through the guards. These guards who are there to watch him. Paul's attitude about being imprisoned is not, I am stuck here with you. His attitude is, you are stuck here with me. Paul may have been the captive, but to Paul, his audience was a captive audience. They couldn't leave him. I just wonder what it was like for these Roman soldiers going to work every morning. You going back to work? Yeah. Who are you guarding? Paul. Oh boy, you're hearing sermons today. You know, you can, I, I can only imagine, you know, mo, I, Anybody who studied the Bible would love to sit down with Paul for just a few hours to talk with him. These Roman soldiers had to sit there with him all day and listen to whatever Paul wanted to say. But they were starting to believe. And the word was spreading through the imperial guard. And he says it's also emboldening other Christians to go forth and speak because they saw Paul. They said, well, Paul can't go anywhere and speak. And he can, he, he's holding up pretty good. I'm going to go forth and speak. This isn't the end of the world to get arrested for Jesus. So they're going forth and his example's motivating others. His goal, Paul's goal is, he is not acquittal. He would love it. He would love to be set free. He, he said at one point, I want to travel to Spain. I want to go over there and plant churches. He doesn't really care, though, 
if he's released because he wants to see the kingdom of Jesus advance. He says, you know, if I get out of here, I can help the kingdom advance. But even while I'm here, I see the kingdom advancing and I rejoice. But on top of that, he's got rivals and he rejoices. Most of us us don't like rivals. He says, I got two groups of people out there preaching. One group is out there preaching out of good motives. And there's another group that's out there preaching out of bad motives. But he says, even though some of them are preaching for faulty reasons, the gospel's still being preached. Yeah, those folks may be going forth thinking, hey, Paul's locked up. I can go become popular. He's become popular by preaching. I can become popular by preaching. I'll go out there, this message of Jesus, build me a big church. And, God, and Paul says, you know what? They're still preaching Jesus. Because you may not have a perfect preacher, but if that imperfect preacher is pointing you to the perfect Savior, mission accomplished. Because let's be honest, who's got a perfect preacher? I know y'all don't. I know that one for a fact. Way better than you do. Oh, my sister walks by the back door. Shut up, Julie. I mean, you didn't see the face she was giving me back there. How many other churches have a preacher this morning who told the special music singer to shut up? I did that in first service, too. Well, you know what? No other church around here. I know of no church with a perfect preacher. But as long as we're doing what we ought to do and pointing you to Jesus in the proper direction, folks, you're still being saved. You still know the Son of God. You still know redemption and promise. And Paul's saying, these folks, they may not be out there preaching for the right motives, but they are preaching the right Savior, and for that I rejoice. People are still going to be saved despite their selfish attitudes. Because Paul's goal is not his reputation or his comfort, but the advancement of the news of Christ. You might say, well, preacher, hold up a second. A few weeks ago, you were in 2 Corinthians. Where Paul was defending himself and trying to salvage his reputation. Now you say he doesn't care about it? Here's the difference. In Corinth, his reputation was tied to the gospel. And those who were driving him down were doing it to preach a different gospel, a faulty one. Here, it's not. Paul's attitude is, if the real gospel is being preached, he's fine with it. Might be preaching for the wrong reason, but as long as you're preaching the right gospel, it's the right message going forth, it's the right Savior people are meeting, the right kingdom is advancing, and Paul sits back and says, you can cause me all the trouble you like, because it's not about me, it's about the kingdom. Take note of this attitude here, the concern is for the kingdom, not for the self. How can we cultivate that attitude? You see, when our focus is the kingdom of Christ, we can endure all kinds of situations and we can still rejoice. Sometimes we might talk about how we'd endure imprisonment for Christ. You know, if if the government came in here and pointed a gun at me like it was North Korea and said, you recant Christ, I wouldn't do it. I'd tell them you'd have to shoot me. Well, fine. 
But then we complain about the music, the seating, and this and that. And, you know, did you see what they did in church? Oh, we'll endure hardship, but we won't endure that one song. We'll stand up to people who are telling us to recant, but we won't sit down unless it's on a good old wooden pew. I think sometimes we get our, we, we get our focus on the incorrect stuff. We've got to train ourselves. It's not our preferences. It's not our circumstances that matter. It's the advancement of the gospel. It's not what's what's going on here. It's about where Christ's message is headed. Because our joy in Christ comes. It doesn't come because we get wound up about things that don't matter. Our joy in Christ comes because we are focused on that which does matter. Who's meeting Jesus? Who's coming to him? Are they... Truly understanding the message of repent of sin and receive eternal life. Return to Jesus. Be baptized into him. Belong to him. You receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life. If the answer is yes, then maybe we ought to chill. And let that warm, quiet feeling of joy take over. Yeah, we can rejoice when our circumstances are poor. Because I tell you, friends... The kingdom of Christ is advancing. That's not the only reason we rejoice. No, we can rejoice because of what's ahead of us. Now, we all have things, we have people we don't want to give up. You know, we, we, we watch the market news, and if the markets crash, we get disappointed because that's our retirement. If things go badly, you know, it, well, I guess we're going to be the door greeter at Walmart. Thank you for coming. Or we grieve when we lose loved ones. Loved ones, we're going to miss them. We can't imagine life without them. We don't want to lose them. You see, we like our lives as they are, but we know we cannot keep any of this. Our possessions, our loved ones, our health, friends, we are guaranteed to lose all of them. I'm at the age now where I'm discovering there's parts of this body that ain't going to work like they used to. A lot of you looking at me and be like, "Uh uh-huh, and you just starting. You'd probably get a different smile on your face if it didn't hurt to do it. That's life. My grandfather told me, Phil, sometimes I feel like a 20-year-old guy trapped in a body that doesn't work. And then we see our loved ones pass away. We see our possessions rot. Friends, whatever we have in this world, we are losing. We can't keep it. But a lot of this world at that point starts being driven to grief and despair. Last few years have been rough. I had this conversation with multiple counselors. I was asking them, what's going on in culture? What, you know, when people come to you and talk to you, how, what's going on? 
Every one of them said, you know, I've had people come and talk to me about, you know, trying to deal with things. Because especially back in 20 and 21, when the pandemic was new and fresh and we weren't sure what was going to happen. And you couldn't find the toilet paper you liked. And, you know, remember those days. You know, there was so much uncertainty. Some people were getting really depressed. Some people were getting driven to despair. And they said, you know, a lot of folks are down. But the ones who are really driven to despair are the ones who don't have Christ. They said, Christians... Yeah, they're, they're down, but they're handling it better. There's a reason for that. Paul recognizes this. He writes about it in chapter 3. Yeah, we're going to lose stuff in this world. And he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness that, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." As Paul's writing this portion of the letter, he's starting to warn the people against those who would try to get them to return to Judaism. And he starts listing off his own Jewish qualifications. You know, Paul, man, that guy, he had a resume. In the AD 33 edition of Jewish Today... Paul was listed as one of the top five up-and-coming prospects. You know, first service didn't realize that was a joke either. <laughs> but as he lists off his resume, he was the apprentice of one of the best-known rabbis around. He's from a good family. He's done so much, learned so much. I mean, this guy, if you would rank theological students like you did baseball prospects, I mean, this guy, he's in AAA, about ready to make the number league, the major leagues, be rookie of the year. And if he doesn't blow out his throwing arm, he's going to make the Hall of Fame. And then Paul, as he lists all this off, he says, and none of it matters. It's all garbage. He had quite the life. He threw it away for Christ. He willingly accepts suffering in place of privilege, humility in place of prestige, that he might know Jesus and look forward to eternal life. As people are try as trying to draw people back to Judaism and to the law, he says, look, you want somebody who loved the law? Man, that was me. And now it's not. Because I found something better. I found Jesus. I'm not holding to do's and don'ts. He says, I've got eternal life in front of me. 
And here we find the key to Christian joy. We look to eternity. Friends, it is not where we have been or what we have done that fills us with joy. It is where we are going. Paul says his entire life is oriented toward the goal of eternal life in Christ. And I tell you, friends, such life is found nowhere else. There's no other way to enjoy life ever, everlasting. When we were driving home from Memphis yesterday, I'm on 270, trying to you know, not bounce off of other people in the motorhome, and I see a car pass me, and you know, you know you're dealing with a really good, mentally well-rooted person when their car's covered in bumper stickers. And one of this person... One this person had had on bumper sticker that said, you know, God is too big for any one religion. I thought about that. And I thought, you know, that might be right, but it's not right in the way they think. Because what they're thinking, based on the other stickers, is that every religion has a piece of the truth. Every, you know, you Christians shouldn't be so exclusive because everybody's on their own path of God, to God. They are correct that no book can contain the fullness of God, but we're not just living by a book, friends. We have the very Son of God. The fullness of God was made man. He dwelt among us. We learn things about God that cannot be written down. And what's more, we have His Spirit within us. And that Son of God who came to show us the way said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So either Jesus is correct or he is a liar. Because that's a pretty exclusive statement. If he's correct, we'd better listen. If he's a liar, what's the point? Well, not long after he said that, they killed him. Not long after that, he rose from the dead. I think we ought to listen personally. And even Paul says, there's nowhere else. Peter, even to Jesus at one point, said, and Jesus said, hey, you guys leaving me too? And Peter says, who else has the words of life? No, we find eternal life in Christ and in Christ alone. And what that means is our joy is in Christ and in Christ alone. Because our joy is not found in things that pass away on earth, things that only last for this life. Even over the last few years, when everything, in these uncertain times, now there's a phrase I never want to hear again, but, yeah, even in the uncertainty, even in the wondering what's going to happen, we knew it was all going to be okay. Those who are in Christ understood, we've got an eternity ahead of us. Oh yeah, we may have wondered, Looking back now, it almost feels a little silly. At the time, we weren't sure. I see folks now like, oh, look how stupid all this was. Like, dude, you're saying that with years of hindsight. Calm down. At the time, you were lined up for toilet paper too. Chill. But we've got a hope, friends, that doesn't depend on this earth. Our hope is secured in heaven, eternal, much like the life that we are promised in Jesus Christ. Our joy is not leashed to circumstances here. It does not depend on what happens to our paycheck. It does not depend on what happens at the doctor's office. Friends, our hope and our joy has been sealed since that day at the empty tomb. Amen. We've got so much to look forward to. How can a Christian be sour? I mean, yeah, it's not, we're, like I said, we're not all going to be super bubbly. 
But we ought to at least walk around like we, do, like we have a hobby other than sucking on lemons. We should have a deep and abiding joy. Doesn't always look like we got a smile stapled to our face. But we know that things are going to be okay. And whether it's the big things or the little things going on, it's going to be okay. You ever notice that it's never when, when the poor wife cracks and just you know, takes that meat tenderizer to her husband's noggin? It's never because of something big. It's always because he just won't put the socks in the hamper. It's the little things that get us more often than anything else, isn't it? That's what steals our joy. It's not the huge stuff. It's the little stuff. That idiot in accounting that keeps stealing your lunch. Day in, day out. And I, I think it's because the little things, the big things we know, they're only going to happen every so often. The little things are every stinking day. And that beats us down. So maybe every single day, we need to remind ourselves of our joy. Take note of this focus that Paul has. Our eyes are on, are on eternity, not now. He says, I'm looking forward. I ain't looking back. Paul's theology does not have a rearview mirror installed. All he needs to know is who I was. I am not now. He's got places to be. He knows where he's going. And maybe for us, what we ought to do is rip that rearview mirror right off the inside of our brains and say, say, I am not going to look back anymore. I'm going to look ahead. Because I know what's coming. Things might go well for us here. They might go poorly. We're not guaranteed a prosperous life, a healthy life. Sorry, I cannot guarantee you that. Maybe you'll have it. Maybe you won't. I am sorry if you don't. But we can still have joy because we know what awaits us. It's going to last longer than this life. Sometimes I've spoken with people who are getting ready to go into surgery. They've been waiting for this surgery for forever. They've been hurting. And they're planning to go into surgery, which is never fun. They're going to endure pain and months of rehab and hard work. But they're happy because there's a chance their pain will go away. It's not guaranteed, but there's a chance. And they're grasping at that chance, so there's that happiness there. Yes, let's do this. Maybe I'll feel some relief. Friends, when we undergo trials in a lifetime of following Christ, our eternal life is guaranteed. There's no maybe there. And when Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I might be back to get you. No, that's not what he says. He says, I will come. You will be with me. There is never at any point any question about the future of a Christian. It is as certain as anything can be in the Bible. And so we can rejoice because, like Paul, we know what awaits us. We can rejoice. We don't need to be wealthy. We don't even need to be healthy. We don't need to be loved by all. We just need Christ. Because in Jesus, we have access to all his promises. Whatever happens here, we can look past it. 
Man, it's been hard to look around at this world lately and like where it's at. Personally, I think it's going to get worse. Not just because I tend more to be a pessimist, but I can read the handwriting on the wall. Friends, I tell you, I've never been so glad to say this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Amen. We know what awaits us. The greatest promise in the Bible is that of eternal life. After this life, we're going to have more life forever in person with God. And so we work to that end. We're not worrying about our circumstances because they don't matter. If everybody decides to mock us, fine. I've had people make fun of me before. I'm not going to say it's fun. I survived. They aren't the ones who matter. We can live with all this in mind, knowing that Christ's promises are sure. And nothing, not one thing in this world can stop us from being a constant fount of joy. As Paul starts to close this letter, he comes to one of the most misused verses in the Bible. Philippians 4.13. You've probably seen people put this put this verse on things, you know, like, I just ran a marathon because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you get out there and run a marathon, folks, because you worked it hard at it, it ain't because Philippians said you can do it. Because when Paul says that, he says, I know what it's like, good circumstances and bad. He says, hey, I've been in prison, I've been out of prison, I've, been, I've had a lot to eat, I've had nothing to eat and gone to bed hungry. I've had great times, I've had the worst times ever. But he says, I can endure it all. I can be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Folks, it's not, that verse is not about accomplishing major physical feats. It is about keeping going without giving in to despair because, because Christ gives us his strength. This world, though they mock Christ, though they flaunt Christ, though they at every turn, they disparage Christ's people, they are given over to despair. Well, Phil, how do you know this? Do you think people commit suicide because they're thrilled? Look at those statistics, folks. We're in a world of despair. We are in a time of prosperity. As such, the world has never known in history. And yet, people despair. Why? Because they have so much... And it's not enough. And yet there are Christians all throughout this world, because they have Christ, they have joy. They can't beat it out of us. They can't rip it from us because we have Jesus. So we indeed can rejoice. Man, we ought to be the most joyful people out there. Again, not running around happy, 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 happy. No, but we go forth... And there's a sense of well-being. When bad things happen, we can bear up under them. When we experience the griefs and the sufferings of this world, we know that this world isn't going to last forever. There's more. 
This isn't going to happen because you flip a switch in your brain, friends. You're going to have to work on it. You're going to have to cultivate it. You're going to have to change your own focus. And when you feel yourself slipping, refocus on Christ and his promises. Because we know him. We know our future. We have the most to look forward to. And we know the joy that only comes through Christ. Friends, this is not a joy you're going to find anywhere else. You may never be in prison. I hope you're not. I understand the food there could use a little work. I hope you're never beaten for following Christ. You're probably going to be mocked for following Christ. But no matter what happens, friends, we will have joy. Because we have him. And we have his promises. And friends, we know where we're going. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your blessings. We praise you because you have given us your son. You have given us redemption. You have given us promise. And Father, in all that, you have given us joy. Lord, help us to overcome the despair of this world. To keep focused on you. That we might reflect that joy into a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.